You're listening to What Mad Universe on the Greenlit Podcast Network. Check out all our shows at greenlitpodcast.com. Action, excitement, horror, romance, thrills and chills, swords and sorcery, rockets and ray guns, a dizzying panoply of the strange and impossible from the darkest depths of the human imagination. What Mad Universe encompasses such tales as these? Join us as we bear witness to the sweeping sprawl of all the history that never was and all the futures that could yet be. It's adventure as you like it on What What Mad Universe. Astariol of Ifish kept his promise and made a song of that first great deed of Ged's, it has been lost. There's a tale told in the East Reach of a boat that ran aground, days out from any shore, over the abyss of ocean. In Ifish they say that it was Astariol who sailed that boat, but in talk they say it was two fishermen blown by a storm far out on the open sea, and in Holt the tale is of a Holpish fisherman, and tells that he could not move his boat from the unseen sand it grounded on, and so wanders there yet. So of the Song of the Shadow there remain only a few scraps of legend carried like driftwood from isle to isle over the long years. But in the deed of Ged nothing is told of that voyage, nor of Ged's meeting with the Shadow before ever he sailed the Dragon's Run unscathed, or brought back the Ring of Arathakbe from the tombs of Atuan to Havnor, or came at last to Roke once more, as Archmage of all the islands of the world. Hello, welcome to What Mad Universe. I'm Adam Prosser. With me, as always, is Philip Rice. Hello. And uh, today we're going to look at another titan of the science fiction and speculative fiction community, uh, none other than Ursula K. Le Guin, um, who is uh, possibly uh, the most popular and certainly one of the biggest uh, uh names who's a woman to have written uh, science fiction and fantasy um until a certain wizard author came along i guess uh, <laughs> but uh you know she's yeah. she's <laughs> she's known for uh, uh we can we can dunk on rolling a lot in this episode <laughs> if you want uh but he's uh, but she's uh she's known for both science fiction and fantasy she's uh held up in uh you know in similar uh, vain as some of the other uh, great writers of the 60s and 70s um you know she's she's regularly placed in with people we've talked about like uh you know ellison and heinlein and philip k dick she actually went to the same high school as philip k dick apparently oddly oh. enough uh, but they didn't know each other so there you go they missed each other um and then later she actually uh nodded to to philip k dick and some of, in uh, the lathe of heaven uh is actually a book that's a bit of a nod to uh, philip k dick and she was a uh, the 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 daughter of a uh, an anthropologist and uh she was an a feminist anarchist uh and you know she provided a very much needed viewpoint to sci-fi and also to um uh, fantasy and uh, today we're going to look at her her big fantasy series i'd i'd read uh, several of her books um and she also wrote a book called the world the word for world is forest 
which is very much the impl- imp- <laughs> the uh, inspiration for Avatar and also Return of the Jedi, actually, um, involving as it does a you know powerful imperial Wait, uh, force. Wait, which Avatar? James Cameron's? Yeah, James Cameron's Avatar. Yes, not the uh, not the not the last Airbender. Um, it in- okay. It, just wondering because yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, it's the idea of a story of like a, a sci-fi story with a an imperialist uh, army uh, invading a uh, you know pastoral planet of you know uh, of uh, life forms who live in the trees and you know uh, the, the 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 tables being turned on them and it's got a you know obviously an environmentalist and an, an anti-colonialist perspective on all that stuff um, and that does some her it's not even her best book by any chance by any by any means, but, um, uh, it's, it does kind of sum her up a lot. Um, it was part of a, a series of books she wrote called the Hainish cycle, which were actually set technically in the same universe in which it was revealed by the way that, uh, a race races had, uh, a race called the Hainish had colonized the, the, uh, the galaxy and earth was just one of the er, humans aren't originally from earth in this, in this, uh, in this reality. Hain is the, the birthplace of humanity, but, uh, we were colonized, you know, millions and millions of years ago by Hain, the Hain, and we kind of lost track. And uh, so most of the aliens in this world, quote, are in this uh, universe are are uh, humans. They're just evolved differently, slightly. They're they're, but they're still basically recognizable as humans. Um, so that's kind of an interesting series. But th- she's probably much better known for the series that we're going to talk about today, which is the Wizard of Earth series. Um, Phil, had you read uh, anything by Legin before this or this book? Um, no, I had heard of her uh, through. I mean, I, I, had, you know, the name's tossed around a lot. I, I definitely heard the name and seen some quotes of hers. Uh, there was a video by um, Dan Olson of Folding Ideas from years and years ago, um, really ripping into the um, TV adaptation, um, which I have now seen, and he was right to hate it. Um, <laughs> um, yes, and again, hated it herself yeah, as well. Yes, yes, uh, rightfully so, like I said. Um, I actually uh, had uh, gotten uh, a copy of Wizard of Earthsea a few years ago and started reading it, but like a lot of things I start reading, I didn't I didn't get very far, not because it was bad, but just because other things were there as well. I'm sort of like, um, uh, uh, you know, a bird seeing something shiny when it comes to books. <laughs> um, like a sparrowhawk, one might say. Yeah. Actually, they don't collect shiny things, but never mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and I, I don't think I'd even gotten, like, the f- a full chapter into it. So, like, you know, really pathetic. But, uh, yeah, I didn't I didn't think it was bad or anything, just like I said. Um, so I'm glad you selected this for uh, for something, because it was something I've been meaning to get to. Um, it... it always seemed really interesting um uh one one of the big things of course is that the uh, it's flipped uh the uh, usual fantasy uh conventions on race where there's uh white heroes against you know nameless dark hordes um you know even tolkien who i don't think was like you know like like he, he had ideas of his time but he wasn't like a lovecraft level racist but there's some really unfortunate stuff with the herodim and is yeah. that how you pronounce it i can't Her- the herodrim yeah yeah the, the thing about the thing about lord of the rings is you can see tolkien and there's the passage that's always quoted where he finds that um uh 
Paradream soldier lying, you know, in, in the field. Uh, I think it's, um, it's either Sam or Frodo. I can't remember in Lord it's of the Rings. Sam. Yeah. I remember yeah. He's, yeah. Yeah, he sees the Herodrim lying there and he sort of thinks about how that's just a, someone who was taken from their homeland and is, you know, didn't mean any, wouldn't have meant them any harms if, you know, Sauron hadn't whipped them up against them and so on. And, and like, it's it's very clear that Tolkien was a, a you know, a, 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 ni- a nice-hearted guy. He wasn't, you know, doing this as like, uh, the, the, you know, the, the, the immigrants sort of thing. Yeah. But he was, but he was of his time and, and, he was calling back to the stories of olden times, which tend to have a lot of that kind of, at, at the very least, xenophobia baked into them. Um, yeah, not, I mean, it, it, it varies. There, there are like uh, um, epic poems and things starring Moors and, you know, there's... Yeah, yeah. Um, there's one from Italy starring the son of one of the Knights of the Round Table, who's a Moor, and mm-hmm. um, he's described as having, you know, black skin. Um so you know it's not universal. Race is like a shifting, yeah, yeah, you know, social construct. But um, yeah, uh, but like I was saying, this sort of flips it where the main characters are have reddish brown skin for the most part. In, uh, in the archipelago, it's it's darkish, darkish skin, um, mm-hmm. and uh, the um, the enemies, quote unquote, though that's being reductive, are. Uh, usually the white-skinned, um, um, what you call it, uh, well, the, the, people. The, they're yeah, not, they're, not the enemies, but the uh, the barbarian outsiders yeah, yeah, the, who the sort of threaten outsiders. the civilized yeah, lands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, and enemies, like I said, is is because this book isn't as simplistic as that. It doesn't have. Well, I mean, one of the main characters is from uh, Carnage, yeah, yeah. which is where this yeah, all is. In the, so in she the becomes sequel. very. Yeah. yeah. So she becomes a, a crucial part of the story and it's obviously not about it's not going to declare a race of people to be bad and in fact that's part of why I think she wrote the sequel was to kind of say and and some of the other stuff in the later books where she wanted to, you know, to to sort of get into their head as well. But very yeah. much it's the civilized world and the and the world of magic and the, you know, the world that doesn't I'd say kingdom, but it doesn't have a king when the story starts. But uh, it's clearly the archipelago the sort of... is is what it's usually referred to as the, the right. Hardic lands or the archipelago. Yeah, the, but the but what I mean is the beacon of civilization is is uh, you know it's got the uh, the people of color uh, and the and the they're the ones who understand magic and the Kargads are sort of the arguably more primitive people. They don't know magic and they're kind of. Uh, they're, they're from, there was actually kind of a neat thing she does geographically where the dragons live in the west and and the east is you've got the Kargads who don't use magic at all and uh, sort of the the center is the the main archipelago in the Hardic lands where they they're potentially a bridge between sort of the wild lands of dragon and magic and and the the more mundane worlds on the east uh, which I think is kind of cool they and they call that out ex- explicitly in one of the stories too Um but yeah, and 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 it's also, um, it, it, yeah, it, it's the the whole series is very much about subverting a lot of fantasy ideas at a time when fantasy was not anywhere near as popular a genre and as as over as codified a genre as we would think of it nowadays either, which is pretty impressive. Uh, of course, there had been fantasy like that, definitely was a was a genre as i've said in earlier episodes uh, you know it's a mistake to think that you know fantasy kind of dropped into everyone's lap fully formed from tolkien uh because there were people writing it all through like even just if we talk about modern fantasy 
you know, it's a big thing going all the way back to at least Gulliver's Travels. And earlier, and early yeah. 20s, oh, oh yeah. I mean, literally the dawn of humanity. But yeah. if we're going to talk about like fantasy as kind of a post enlightenment modern version of literature, uh, you know, even then it goes back quite a while. And and um, <clears throat> the early twentieth century, it was it was actually pretty popular as a as a genre, but just yeah, in a very uh, different style. Le Guin, it, it is Le Guin, right? No, no Le Guin, apparently. Le Guin, thank you. Um, I really should do more, you know, sound research well, in these okay. episodes. <laughs> Le Guin said um, uh, she read uh, Lord Dunsany's uh, Dreamer's Tales, one of his short story collections, as a child, and it changed her life. So uh, she mm-hmm. was very much influenced by that vein of uh, fantasy. I'm sure other authors in, of that period as well. Um, right. And and you can see a lot of Lord Dunsany in, this, in these books. Not... You know, not it's not as straight, you know, Lord Dunsany pastiche or anything close to that. But you can sort of see like some of the way she uses language and repetition. Yeah, and, it's yeah. got it's got the it's got the atmosphere of Dunsany in in many ways. More I think more plot, a, more plot than Dunsany usually has. Right. Well, yeah, of course. And but but she she captures a very. Um, yeah, a real, I guess, numinous might be the word. Field like it feels fantastical. The world she builds yeah. it very it it breathes and it it both feels real and grounded, but also like a strange world that isn't like ours. Which is yeah. something that fantasy started to fall into. I feel, especially as you get past the period when she wrote the original books, um, because it does start to get very, you know, Dungeons and Dragons started to become this thing where it would sort of codify fantasy and, and rules and things. I, I, I've been told that, um, uh, Jack Vance and the dying earth, which is one that we have to do eventually, um, is often pointed to as something that sort of started to frame, uh, fantasy as something that could be seen as more of a pulp sci-fi mode to it. And that, um, of course, then you have like arguably Marvel Comics and arguably Star Wars is doing some of the lifting in that regard as well. And it became much more of a sort of, uh, you know, here's what uh, here, here's here's the the formula, not not to reduce everything to formula, but it, it became much more about plot and and a certain, you know, series of tropes rather than just trying to sort of the Dunsanian thing, which is, I invented a word, uh, <laughs> which is where uh, you're I've kind of drawn into a dreamlike, uh, a dreamlike world. It kind of engulfs you in terms of, you know, the, the rich atmosphere of the world. Um, I actually did want to mention that, um, uh, that it's actually significant. This is something that we haven't specifically talked about, although we, We've touched on it in uh, other shows. Uh, it, it needs to be understood the genre of fantasy, the post-World War II genre of fantasy. We've talked about post-World War II science fiction. Uh, what happened, of course, you know, Lord of the Rings is the, the elephant in the room when it comes to fantasy. Um, but it, um, it, uh, it, you know, it, it came out. The Hobbit was, I believe, pretty significant success. Um, and then after, that was written before World War II. And then after World War II, uh, in 54, 55, the three Lord of the Rings books were published and, uh, they were solid and they were popular, but they weren't like epical and earth shattering. They weren't this thing that, you know, set everyone on fire. They just became, you know, a well-regarded book. And this was in the UK as well. And and they were published in the U S. Uh, but again, they didn't set the world on fire, but about 10 years later, uh, a, a, a publisher called Ace Books, um, 
published the trilogy in paperback, which is apparently a bit controversial because they claimed that uh, the official publisher um, uh, that had the rights to the hardcover had not uh, exercised its option and they hadn't copyrighted it. So they had the right to basically pirate it. <laughs> that was what they claimed. Um, and it came out in paperback. And that was exactly the right moment for paperback fantasy to be big. Because remember that hardcover is seen as the, you know, quality high, high the, the good storytelling and paperback is trashy pulp novels. Uh, but so now this, this made Tolkien in some ways more available and it, it sort of renewed an interest in it. And this was, of course, the mid sixties, there was a whole, you know, hippie counterculture interest in Tolkien as well. So that's where Tolkien kind of exploded and became a huge thing. And because it was a paperback series, that's kind of where, um, uh, fantasy kind of got a bit more of a feel of being a, you know, a popular genre and, and led to the kind of, uh, you know, epic fantasy that we're familiar with. Again, the Dungeons and Dragons kind of mode. Uh, Tolkien kind of created a bridge, uh, or rather Ace Books, created a bridge between, you know, classy literary fantasy and, you know, sort of Shannara, which is something we might talk about eventually too, but it, it, it was directly derived from that thing. So b suddenly there was a bit of a boom in, fa in the fantasy genre and people were rushing to it. And that's when, uh, Lagin was encouraged to write this book. They sort of said, "Hey, you got a you got a kids fantasy book that could kind of be pulpy in you," and she said she would do it. And that was her breakthrough novel too. She hadn't she'd been writing stories for about a decade, but I don't think she'd uh, she'd hit it big until Wizard of Mercy uh, came out. Um, which is and and it it was meant to be a one off too, which is really interesting. Um, but it was yeah sixty eight. Uh, and early 70s are when the first three books uh, dropped. Um, and yeah, she just, she she wrote the first book uh, and it is, it's definitely grappling with a lot of ideas with sort of Jungian archetypes, which is apparently something she had a bit of a complicated relationship with. Um, and, and then as it goes on, it definitely subverts a lot of the ideas of fantasy and you can start to see her like kicking back against, especially one might say science fiction, but then it was starting to affect the fantasy genre as well. Uh, her whole thing about uh, the the hero as a as a concept, like, was literally something she was pushing against. Um, yeah, uh, one thing that really um, stuck out to me uh, in this whole series was uh, the world building. It's really um, there's a lot of thought put into it, but not in a way where a lot of fantasy. Uh, you get where it's just info dumps um, like the characters live in this world. So they don't have, there's certain things that they don't really explain to each other because it's just assumed. And we sort of uh, get it doled out throughout the stories. Um, yeah. Like, I uh, mean, the, go ahead. Uh, like the, the idea, well, it, it's um, magic in this, in this world. Uh, mostly for the most part works by uh, uh, knowing the true names of things. Um, in the um uh what's the sorry um yeah in the old speech um which is the the original language that all other languages derive from and it's the language spoken by dragons so if you know the name of of say uh a type of plant you can like command you know do magic with that plant or if you know somebody's if you know a person's true name you can have power over them um right so uh, everybody 
uh, within the, the hardy glands has a true name, which is revealed to them around uh, puberty or as their adolescence. Um, coming of age, yeah. Yeah, coming of age by a person of power uh, through a, a particular ritual. But they also have a use name. So they they rarely tell other people their their true name because, you know, people can have power over them. Like, it, it's dangerous to do so. Um, and so uh, their, their use name is, is the name they use regularly. So all these characters have, or for the most part, most of them have uh, uh, multiple names. Uh, the main character is Ged. Um, that's his true name. But he's, uh, he goes by Sparrowhawk, Hawk, uh, Dun- Dooney? Was that, sorry, how do you pronounce? Uh, yeah, child- was that his, his original name? Yeah, his childhood Yeah. Name. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that's a really, uh, interesting, uh, thinking about, you know, words have power, so you'd want to hide your name so nobody can have power over you. That's an interesting idea. I think reading, reading this, it was, it was, uh, partway into the first chapter, what really, um, started to clue me in that this was a really well thought out world was that, um, uh, it mentions that, uh, Weather working, which is controlling weather, is a really common thing that a lot of uh, sorcerers, mages of all kinds can do. And um, uh, you can actually look up in the sky often and see clouds just moving around, avoiding various areas, because people are just pushing it out of the way so it doesn't rain on them. Right. And I, yeah. I thought that was, like, just... I, it's a small thing. Like, it's not it's not dwelled upon. It just mentions that, but it's... I don't know. It's a, it's a really clever thing. It's yeah. She's she's made. I, I like that a lot. She's yeah. Like and the, it's funny because that's not a thing she does a lot in these books, but it it is something that um like it's not so much about ramifications and stuff. She's as we said, she's the daughter of an anthropologist, and I think that came through because everything that she does when she when she's you know cr- describing magic is the kind of thing that you've seen in folklore and in, uh, you know, cultural assumptions, whether it's about, you know, simple, you know, witch, witches of, or hedge wizards or whatever, or, you know, mythological ideas or different religions and different cultures. It's all, it all feels very, and even, it, like, there's there may be stuff that is totally original till again, but it, it feels 100% like believable and natural and you're you're saying that oh yeah they don't she doesn't spell it out but i mean it just all felt very natural to me maybe it's because i read a lot of fantasy but <laughs> it all felt very natural and very um like just that oh yeah that that of course that's how it works you know the truth no, no, or I, something like by by yeah. spelling it i mean the not like massive info dumps where she just sure. sort of has a character who doesn't know anything about the world and somebody else explains it to them that's yeah. a thing in well, a just, lot of it, fantasy. For sure. But I, I feel like reading it, it just, you, it, it, I don't feel lost at all. You just go, yeah, yeah, this makes sense. I get the general yeah, yeah. concept like, of like it. A, and you, yeah. I just say she, she doles it out in a really clever way where it's, it, mm-hmm. it feels natural. It feels like that without just dumping a lot of info at you all at once. Yeah. Well, speaking of info dumps, it's time for a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back with what mad universe. 
Hi, we're Ellen, Stephen, and Mark, hosts of Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk gaming and game development. Topics include programming, design, tools, and more. We also do interviews and one of our game jams. Listen to Nice Games Club wherever you get to your wherever you get to your podcast. You get there, <laughs> or at nicegames.club. Retrograde Amnesia is a comprehensive podcast about classic Japanese RPGs. Each season, we cover a single game, chapter by chapter, beat by beat. Season one covers Xenogears. Season 2 covers Chrono Cross. Each episode, we play a section of the game and unpack the story, mechanics, music, and themes. Also, our post-production AI companion, the FakeNet, fills us in on the finer details we may have missed. Initializing FakeNet. Yes, they need me for everything. Find Retrograde Amnesia at greenlitpodcasts.com. overly concerned with all of the details anyway like it's yeah you get a you get the general sense of how it works and that's all you need uh the world's not i mean magic is crucial but um you know it's again it just it's suggested clearly enough and that's all you need to to understand everything that's that's going on um she she's actually she she was apparently explicitly uh inspired by um the arthurian stories and specifically she wanted kind of the idea of you know, Merlin, well, what, how did Merlin become an old wizard with all this power? Like, what was he like before that? So it's literally, it's kind of the adventures of young Merlin in a way. Uh, it literally has him going uh, and studying magic in a school, an idea that no one has used since, obviously. <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and it's, uh, it's, uh, it's well handled in that regard as well. Uh, it, it, it's not, it, this isn't the first time we've ever seen you know, a school for sorcerers. Uh, it does show up in a few places, including um, some folklore. There's an old uh, Northern European folktale about a young man who agrees to join the devil school to learn magic. A, like basically a devil says, the devil or a devil says, yeah, I'll teach you magic and you can join my classroom. But at the end of the school year, you know, when the, at the end of the school day, uh, the last one out the door, I take, and I eat his soul or something similar. And uh, the guy basically gets away with it by you know, making sure that uh, the, the, the light through the door will mean his shadow is streaming back into the, to the classroom. And he says to the devil, well, you can take the, you can take the shadow. I'll, I'll go without it. So he becomes a, a guy without a shadow, which is, feels like it might've had an influence on this book since shadows are significant. Um, and then there's a few other books, like there's one called The Wall Around the World, uh, which is actually, it might be a short story, I'm not sure, by a guy called Theodore Cogswell. Um, and uh, you mentioned uh, yeah, Dom uh, Daniel. The, uh, Dom Daniel is a, um, it's a magic school uh, below, in a giant cavern below the ocean near Tunis. Uh, it's in the, um, uh, an 18th century continuation of the Arabian Nights by Dom Chavez and Kazot, Kazoti. I, okay. Um, it's like it, like uh, uh, Western people doing a, a trans, doing a new new versions of the Arabian Nights, and it had a uh, recurring villain uh, named Maghrabi, who's an evil sorcerer, and uh, it describes his backstory that he was trained at at this um, um, Dom Daniel school, uh, mm. which is presided over by Zatanai, who's you know Satan. Um, and uh, at some point, the school was burned down by righteous Muslims. Hmm. Um, it's there's... actually Dom. Dan it's interesting because Dom Daniels mentions in T.H. Uh, White's uh, The Sword of the Stone. As yeah, well. yeah. It uh, it's mentioned in a few places. That's one. Uh, 
I think Gaiman references it in the 1602 comic. Um, it's not terribly common to to see references to it, but it does come up. Uh, yeah, it's an it's, interesting it's a deep idea cut for, for yeah. fantasy nerds. There's also uh, Romanian mythology has the Scholomance, which is uh, a school run by the devil, where they pick uh, one of the students to ride the dragon and control the weather. And it, it of course, was uh, uh, referenced directly in, in Dracula. It was name-checked as that's where Dracula got his powers from. Right. Hmm. Yeah, uh, it's it's it, it's something that I you have to assume Legin had written this, although I, I don't... I, you know, she tends to reference sort of modern inspirations more than really old classical folktale. Oh, yeah. I, it, it's clearly, just a... It's a common idea that's that's come up numerous. It's ha- really hard to place a first on it on concepts as broad as magic school. Um, right, right. But um, uh, a, a lot of people have accused uh, Harry Potter of ripping this book off, and maybe there's elements of that. But I don't think it's a straight, you know, rip off of this. And neither did Legin. I read an interview where she said uh, she mm. doesn't think Rowling ripped her off. Uh, she was annoyed at seeing. Um, People uh, praise Rowling's um, originality, since for whatever <laughs> other virtue she has, originality yeah. is not really one of them. And I would agree yeah. with that, but I don't think that's. Uh... So yeah. Anyway, so this is um, this is a really interesting ser- uh, story in that, uh, especially for again fantasy of this era. Um, I, I was like I'm kind of like I'm saying I, I think fantasy. Uh, we talked about, uh, for instance, the Jurgen, uh, the book Jurgen. Uh, which was written in the twenties, and that had a very um, whimsical feel to it. It's it's not out of, completely out of line with this book, but around the time that Legin was writing this, you started to see that, as we said, more um, more pulp fantasy, where it was much more focused on action. And and when it did uh, sort of start writing about this big epic world building, it it tended to go overboard. <laughs> so it just piled on more and more and more stuff with uh, with creating the world. Um, so, and, and there's often less and less sort of psychological element to it. It's, it's very, uh, you know, Tolkien didn't really have this problem as much, but he did kind of emphasize that it was an exterior evil that had to be defeated. Um, and that, that sort of set certain things for fantasy, which you wouldn't always have seen before that. Um, especially his sort of, his religious ideas going into it of, you know, there's there's obviously good and evil in fantasy stories before this, but really locking in this sort of apocalyptic, big, evil, powerful mo- d- thing that has to be defeated. Um, so Wizard of Earthsea, the first book and the second book, and to a certain extent most of the other books, are significant because they don't really deal with defeating a big evil other. Uh, it's always either the implacable forces of nature, which you can never really defeat, but maybe you can work a change in them or it's dealing with yourself and looking inward and looking to, or, or any, and the third book, which is the closest they come to really like, yeah, I'll defeat this big evil guy. It's still like he's fighting as a guy who's kind of a, who he might've been, who reflects, you know, some of the nature of humanity and that's what the problem is rather than... And he's also kind of pathetic in a lot of ways. Right, yeah, he's he's explicitly seen as, you know, a guy who has turned away from the way you should live. Uh, she's also... Uh, Legin is also a Taoist and uh, that's that's very... Uh, that comes through very clearly in this work. She's always, she's always talking about the balance of nature and the natural 
sort of state of things. And, you know, there's definitely a sense of, you know, you should go with the flow. And wizards, while they can be good or bad, are often, uh, you know, in some ways they're they're actually kicking back against that. They're 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 resisting, you know, the natural state of things in a certain way. And that's that's kind of the larger overarching theme of the entire series, even, including the later books, which surprisingly, I think, uh, really delve into some of the interesting ideas of the first few books in in some detail. Um, um, but like when you. Yeah. Oh, I was just saying, yeah, uh, they, these books are a lot more introspective than a lot of fantasy is. Uh, even even uh, Wizard of Earthsea, which is like a sprawling journey, um, it all is sort of uh, a reflection of Ged's own personal inner journey. Um, mm -hmm. So different He's places. Literally, he literally yeah. conjures up his own nemesis shadow, which he then has to defeat, which, as people have pointed out, is extremely Jungian. It's, it's yeah, the and he Campbell defeats thing. it by figuring out that the shadow is him. It's part. It's the parts of him that he tried to uh, reject, and by uh, embracing it and taking taking it in, he's able to uh, defeat it, so to speak, mm -hmm. or stop it from harming. Yeah, and and uh, yeah, it's it's very much uh, you know he's he he becomes whole and powerful because he you know he embrace rather than I will defeat the evil and stand over it triumphantly. It's Okay, I'll embrace that it's out there. Yeah, and it can it basically come. You know, it's funny because he didn't want to let it possess him, but then he basically acknowledges it, and it does come into him, but in a in a in a positive way. I mean, I don't need to explain the psychology of that, obviously, but yeah. um, it, it it's very interesting too because then the second book, which is in some ways the most interesting book to me, um, it starts with a another character, uh, a Kargad uh, character. Uh, who, as we mentioned, are sort of the barbarian outsiders, a woman. Um, at, initially, this seems to have no connection other than being set in the same world to Ged at all. Uh, and she's the she's this priestess of this uh, very ancient religion that would very much be, you know, pure in, in a Tolkienian or a classic fantasy story, it would be, yeah, she's the bad guy because she's the priestess of darkness. She serves these Cthulian outer, you know, gods of... Called the nameless ones, yeah, the nameless yeah. ones. That's that's never a good sign. Yeah, and uh, but I mean, she's a prisoner as much as anyone. Like she didn't ask for this. It, it she just got that job as the you know evil priestess of this desert temple. Um, and there's a there's a real sense when you get to, and then so Ged shows up on a quest for uh, a ring that's going to basically allow them to find a king and and fix some of the problems with the world because it was broken a long time ago and he's going to heal it. And, uh, she basically, uh, sort of vies with him. She, she hides him from everyone else and she's kind of struggling with him and she's, she, you know, she knows he's, and he's, he's blaspheming the darkness to her because he brings light to look for this thing. But of course that's again, once again, a psychological metaphor. Uh, he's illuminated parts of her that she didn't know were there. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, while the first book is, I, reflects uh, Ged's journey as like a wide sprawling uh, more or less hero's journey sort of thing. Uh, this one, um, her personal journey is reflected by the labyrinth that she's, that she rules over. So it's right. like all these twisting turns and you, you have to 
fi- find your way in the darkness. It's it's really interesting in that. And it's also the the fact that she is like in a in a if you really wanted to reduce it, you could say it's he Ged rescues the princess in this story, right? Like that's that's basically what happens. He takes her away from being a captive and 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 sets her free. But it's framed in such a different way that you never think of it that way. It's very much yeah. through her eyes. It's very much uh the the you know, the story of someone who it's 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 weirdly non well not weirdly it's non that's very much deliberate it's non-judgmental it's sort of well she's one of the evil ones but we're seeing it through her eyes so she never thinks of herself as evil even once she realizes you know how bad she's had it her whole life she doesn't necessarily think of it as like well i was evil and now i'm good and i've been pure like it's it's very much she's apparently Legin's first female heroine surprisingly enough and um you you very much feel the 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 hand of a woman writing that story it's it's you know to be to be a bit cheesy about it it is a story about women's mysteries whereas the first book is about male you know coming of age and yeah. joseph campbell and at, all that stuff yeah at the same time uh she and she, the, this is sort of dealt with in the fourth book which is again from her point of view but or from this character's point of view but uh as a middle-aged Tenar woman, is her name yeah Tanar. Tanar's point of view, but as a middle-aged woman instead of a um, a teenage girl, um, and, and it's about uh, that one. The fourth book is very introspective. It was written in the '90s, right? It was. Yeah, it was nineteen ninety. Well, I guess written in the eighties and posted nineteen ninety. Yeah. and uh, well, she did. Now, now she did begin it right after the third one. Apparently, like she literally okay. would have gone right into writing that book. Uh, she said she was struggling with it, and um, and then she put it down and then 20 years later she figured out uh, because of the character of Tahanu herself uh is what made her uh, realize a framework to hang it on and that's a really interesting like uh, Tahanu is in some ways it's the most difficult book of the the series because at that point she was very firmly into this idea and I want to actually quote from an essay that um uh Legin wrote um, the novel is a fundamentally unheroic kind of story. Of course, the hero has frequently taken it over, that being his imperial nature and uncontrollable impulse, to take everything over and run it while making stern decrees and laws to control his uncontrollable impulse to kill it. So the hero has decreed through his mouthpieces the lawgivers, first, that the proper shape of the narrative is that of the arrow or spear, starting here and going straight there and fuck hitting its mark, which drops dead. Second, that the central concern of narrative, including the novel, is conflict. And third, that the story isn't any good if he isn't in it. I differ with all of this. I would go so far as to say that the natural, proper, fitting shape of the novel might be that of a sack, a bag. A book holds words. Words hold things. They bear meanings. A novel is a medicine bundle, holding things in particular, powerful re- in a particular powerful relation to one another and to us. One relationship among elements in the novel may be that of conflict, but the reduction of narrative to conflict is absurd. I have read how to write a how to write manual that said a story should be seen as a battle and went on about strategies, attacks, victory, etc. Conflict, competition, stress, struggle, etc., within the narrative conceived as carrier bag, belly, box, house, medicine bundle, may be seen as necessary elements of a whole, which itself cannot be characterized either as conflict or as harmony, since its purpose is neither resolution nor stasis, but continuing process. Finally, it's clear that the hero does not look well in this bag. He He needs a stage or a pedestal or a pinnacle. You put him in a bag and he looks like a rabbit, like a potato. This is why I like novels. Instead of heroes, they have people in them. So... That's very much in evidence in Tahanu, because at this point, um, Ged has accomplished everything he will accomplish in the entire series by the end of the third book. And there are two more novels and a bunch of short stories which aren't all about Ged. 
but he is very explicitly and deliberately placed at the margins by that point. And in some ways that actually makes a lot of sense because he's a Merlin type figure. He's, he's supposed to be the guy who guides people. And the, you know, like in the third book, he's found the true King who then rules and kind of takes over as the main character in the, in the last book. Um, but, um, he himself has then moved to the margins and he doesn't even want to interfere by the last book. He's like, I don't want to step in because I'll be seen as the puppet master, but it's, you know, at the end of the third book, they basically say, yeah, he's done with doing and now he can just be. And that's very much what she wanted to write a write about. She wanted to write about a story about a guy who just wanted to exist and not do anything, which is a very weird tack to take. If you're writing a fantasy novel, <laughs> as she more or less points out in that whole essay that she just wrote. Yeah. Um, it's um, Ged has lost his powers. He's no longer a mage of any kind at this point um, because of the events of the, the end of the third book. And um, he's just trying to find his, his new place in the world. And um, um, he struggles like he doesn't he doesn't uh, have all the answers. He doesn't have most of the answers at the beginning. Um, and he really struggles to find his place in the world. And he's basically not he, he's basically not in it for most of the fourth book like he kind of he comes back he has no power so he yeah. never and he never gets his power back and he goes off to be like he basically goes off into the woods for a large segment of the fourth book and it's about tahanu and but tahanu or, is not having or it's, or, sorry it's it, about tanar yeah tanar sorry who's raising tanar tahanu tanar is a little girl who was uh, very badly burned and she's basically looking after her and healing her and eventually adopting her as her daughter and and Ged marries uh, Tanar and they become a family essentially uh, but very little strictly speaking happens in Tehanu it's the, that's why I say it's one of the most difficult it's probably the most difficult book uh, and it would be it was even a little frustrating to me but I think it's absolutely crucial thematically because of that it's literally about just okay but what about all the other stuff that fantasy skips over on purpose mm -hmm. what, you know, what about the people it's... in a magic world that don't have powers what about and by right. by extension you know what they represent so it's it's focused mostly on women and, and people who right. are often victims of victims in society and um, yeah yeah it's it's really fascinating um and, and yeah, uh, it's it, you can read also. There's a very there's a real anger in the book to Hanu. She said there was in Tombs of Atuan too. I didn't feel it as much in Tombs of Atuan, but there's definitely a very dare I say feminist anger in uh, Tahanu, which is sort of an anger at the injustices of the world and the way you know women are treated in the world and 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 you know how can we find our way in this world basically and she even wrote and you know this shows you that this has always been around that you know people were furious at her for letting Ged lose all his powers for, uh, you know, making, you know, marginalizing him in the narrative so much. And it's, Oh, it's those angry feminists who are destroying, you know, it, she, she's the original SJW again. So <laughs> that's, that's, what seems to be, uh, what people's response to the book. And I do get it because in a very real way, Ged has become impotent, like literally in terms of what he can do. And it's about how a guy can, how you can be that and still be, you know, in some ways, a more whole person than when you're off trying to slay dragons and have. Yeah, crazy... he's not. He's like more whole in a lot of ways because he's not beholden to his power anymore. He can be just mm -hmm. a, a person. Like you don't have freedom in a sense. Somebody, I think uh, Grant Morrison actually made a uh, a comment to this uh, remark, which is that one of the 
things about narratives is that you're trapping your character, like you're controlling what they do, right? They don't have, they don't really have freedom because you, the author, are telling them what to do. The only way to give them real freedom as a character is to not write about them. Uh, and, and you can see that in this book. She's basically setting Ged free and letting him go off and not writing about him. So he find and, and that's true of Tanar to a certain degree as well. She finds her freedom and, uh, you know, she's, she's not trapped in a narrative where she has to defeat the evil Lord and go on a quest. She's just allowed to live her life in that, in that same regard. I think that's something she's very deliberately, uh, doing in this story. Yeah. So, uh, part of the, the way this world works is, uh, wizards are always men like, uh, trained was, you know, trained at rope they only allow men in and to be a wizard is uh means you have to get a staff from another wizard so you have to be trained by another wizard and they only train men so all wizards are men which is uh are marginalized they're like looked down upon for the most part um they can help locally but they're still sort of mistrusted and there's a phrase um weak is women's magic and wicked is women's magic that keeps popping up uh, there's a part in um, in Tahanu where a, a local witch, uh, Rose, was it Rose or the other one? Uh, Moss, but, I think. Moss, okay. Sorry, there, there's two witches in the story. Um, does a um, uh, a monologue about um, how women's power is is um, um, about the earth and you know more natural stuff and um, in uh, the essay at the at in at least my version that I got um, at the end, Legin writes about how a lot of uh, feminists took that up as like a championing thing, but she said no, that's just that character saying that. I don't necessarily believe that it's that um, uh, like yeah, essentialist. Uh, reductive yeah, essentialist. The the idea that women are their nature is this way and men's nature is this way. And in uh, subsequent, um, in the short story collection, Tales of Earthsea, uh, we see the origin of the school at Roke. And it was actually originally founded by women. So, right. um, and then sort of taken over by men who came from elsewhere um, gradually. And the women were phased out and um, marginalized. And that, that's interesting because like the whole structure of how magic works was founded by women, but then they were kicked out of it. And uh, yeah. so it's not magic then isn't a masculine, you know, wizardry is not yeah, yeah. a masculine thing per se. It's not a feminine thing either. It's just a thing. And yeah. Right. Yeah. It's, I'm, I'm fascinated by the degree, how she, she tosses that out in the first book that, you know, only men can be wizards. There's like different, there's hedge witches and sorcerers and other types of magic, but the true wizards, the mages, the really powerful ones, they have to be men. And she kind of tosses that out. And then she, like, she reveals that it was, you know, one way of thinking that took over uh, after being founded a hundred years ago. But she, it's, it's amazing how she just throws that out and doesn't really judge it or, or make it a big thing. Like it's not a, but she doesn't make it like, this this is evil and must be overthrown. She never frames it that way. Um, a a big crucial. I, I I actually part of me almost wanted to just read the first three and then I I had a tendency to do this. Like when there was a seminal series and then they come back to it years later. I always kind of feel like well, they, when they come back to it years later, it's 
a ca- maybe not a cash in, but it's it's probably not as relevant as the original series. But I'm fascinated by how Tehanu, the Other Wind, which is the last book, and the the short stories, they're really they in many ways they are really expanding on the ideas of the first series in ways that are I think crucial. One big thing is that, um, uh, like I said, the the Kargads are sort of the um, uh, barbarians, but we learn that in some ways, in some ways, they're in the right uh, in terms of how um, things. Uh, right. It turns out that the afterlife that's depicted in the third book, where everybody's just a shadow and not um, um, barely aware of existence, and they don't remember their own loved ones, you know, a horrible existence. That's because uh, wizards, uh, Hardic wizards in the in the distant past, tried to overcome death, the the cycle of rebirth and re- reincarnation. Tried to overcome that, and the result was just trapping people in limbo, basically. So yeah. this entire culture has been um, uh, like all the dead are trapped in uh, this nightmare existence. Yeah, the the pagan the pagan idea of death. I'm not. I mean, I guess it's 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 not great, but it's not like it's not hell either. It's just it's, no, it's no. Sort of, it's but it's, it, it is what it is is what it is is it's the it's a very eastern idea of you know if you hang on to yourself and don't just let go and re, re reunite with the universe, it's going to be unhappy and you're going to be kind of miserable. And that's what's happening. It's people are un, unable to sort of, they're hanging onto a shadow of themselves and they're unable to basically, whether it's reincarnate or whether it's reunite with the universe, whatever you want to say. Um, so yeah, that, that's the thing because this book is very non-judgmental about everything, right? Like it, as you say, the Kargad, you know, they're kind of, the outside barbarian outsiders, and as I say, it's the reversal of they're the light skinned ones. But she doesn't judge them either. And as you point out, they have something to contribute culturally because they end up being the ones who understand some aspects. And and sort of in the I guess it's the final book, they start to kind of piece together everything and go, yeah, the afterlife is messed up. That is what happened. And Kargads sort of have an idea of what what that is, even though they you know they don't have magic, but they have this idea. And it, all the different cultures kind of come together in the last book to kind of say, hey, we should reconceptualize the world and literally the afterlife. And that and that's the other thing because after the events of the third book, the world has changed, as they say very explicitly, and we're on the verge of a whole new paradigm for this the world of Earthsea that we're only getting a little glimpse of because, you know, it's not going to be completely, you know, revealed in their lifetime. But, you know, as uh, given Ligan's politics, it's unlikely that she thought that the idea of, you know, a kingdom and all that stuff was going to be a great, you know, a great way to live your life. So, you know, it feels like she's probably setting the tone for like a movement towards something better and more hopeful at that point. So I, I think that's that's really interesting. And like I say, they, they get there in the books that are technically well after the uh, the original uh, series that inspired everyone. It, in some ways, it's like a big, long scouring of the Shire, which is kind of what sc- Tolkien was most interested in in Lord of the Rings. He, yeah. he cared about the scouring of the Shire. Oh, there's uh, also but, the, the Nameless Ones. Um, and this isn't uh, a sudden reveal, or not, the, the death, the afterlife thing wasn't a sudden reveal, it's over the course of the entire last book, but uh, still, there's no like one point where we realize the nameless ones aren't necessarily that bad. Uh, right. But it's it sort of dealt out over the course of the uh, the last uh, three uh, books. 
just the idea that this is just um, another aspect of the world that wizards have sort of rejected. Um, and as, as it's said in um, one of the afterwards, uh, they were sort of feminized. They were put into, um, this is women's domain and therefore can't be trusted, even though it's neither men's nor women's domain. Right. It's just part of yeah. the earth. It's like, yeah, just yeah, they, they're, part they're, of how the world is. They're the closest to, uh, everything in this book that's framed, especially in the early books that's framed as, well, here's a bad, evil guy who's bad and evil. Uh, you know, you always are very strongly encouraged to see their perspective on things. I mean, if that's the right word for like literal powers of darkness, but you're, ne it's always like, no, you're, if the, it's seeing them as evil as part of the problem. And we have to, we have to, you know, get past that. And when there is a real villain, it's a human who is messed up in the head and he has, he has a bad yeah. attitude towards life. That's the closest thing to a genuine hundred percent villain that you're going to get in these series. And yeah. And then there, there's, there's Hanu. two like really hateable villains. I think in the series Cobb, who's um, a wizard trying to overcome death and in, in doing so messes up everything and uh, is what like magic is disappearing. Like people are forgetting the names of things. And yeah. Um, even like um, artisans and artists are forgetting their passions uh -huh. um and um uh and he's just it revealed to just be a pathetic man who's just terrified of dying right um well that's the whole message of the he's third willing book to bring it's, the whole yeah it's it's you yeah he's willing to bring the whole world down around him just so he doesn't have to face death um and then there's a, a villain in the fourth book who just shows up at the end but he's really misogynistic yeah um really detestable i can't even remember his name he's it's a uh, it's a uh, um, alder and and um, yeah he's a yeah he's a maid he's a real and again this is why I say Tahanu is the one that feels angriest and I mean it's literally about a yeah. girl discovering she's a dragon so you can see some some stuff going on there psychologically again but um it, it's yeah he's he's it's always the you know. I don't want to reduce it to, like, you shouldn't reduce this to, well, it's men, bad, women, good, because it's not that. But it is very much, she's, she's she if she's criticizing and, and demonizing anything in these books, it's the, the drive, which tends to be a male drive, to just, I want to dominate everything, I want to have power over everything, I have to hold on to who I am at all costs, which is part of why you don't want to die, you don't want to let go of who you are, uh, you know, you, ha you have to, you have to control everything. Um, you know, the, the third book could be seen also as like a, a metaphor for capitalism in some ways with the magic going out of the world. It's it's because everyone's, con, you know, gotten uh, wrapped up in mundane and material material things because, again, they're all afraid of dying and they don't understand, you know, the, the, the more metaphysical aspects of the world anymore. Um, so it's it's that's definitely her target more than anything else, I think. Um, yeah. Um, so, uh, these books have some adaptations, uh, which I saw and you didn't, right? You didn't watch. Any I didn't of them? watch any of them. Okay. Um, the, the better one, and this is, um, not high praise because the other one's so bad. Uh, the better one is the studio Ghibli, um, adaptation from, I think it was just a few years ago, like, uh, 2017, something like that. Mm, I think it's older than that, but yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah, and it was uh, not directed by Hayao Miyazaki. It was directed by his son, Goro, um, who, uh, yeah, there's some complicated relationship stuff there with his father. Uh, his father apparently walked out of this movie, which I think was a little harsh. 
It's not um, terribly interesting as a movie, but uh, it's not terrible either. It's just sort of bland. Uh, it doesn't feel like Earthsea to me. It just sort of feels like they, they took... It, it's mostly an adaptation of the third book with some of the fourth book in it. Um, but I don't know. It's just sort of bland fantasy stuff with some aspects of Earthsea, and it doesn't have any of the stuff that really interested me about the uh, yeah. about the books. Now, but that was a masterpiece compared to the uh, TV miniseries. Um uh, made in the early 2000s, um, starring, was it Sean Ashmore or Aaron Ashmore? One of the Ashmore twins. I can't tell them apart because I'm racist against twins. Um, and uh, Kristen Kruick uh, from Smallville plays Tanar, uh, kind of telling that all the characters, or most of the characters are white except for the white character who's mixed race. A giant, to be fair, is played by a black man, but it's still, I mean, that's really unfortunate, but everything else about the movie is also really bad. It's just really cheap looking. The world doesn't feel lived in. It just feels like a complete cash in. There was one part I liked where um, uh, that wasn't directly from the book because they do adapt some things directly. They do the, you know, he defeats the shadow by naming himself, you know, um, but stuff... One thing from the, the original to it that I did amuse me was uh, the dragon. Um, once they figure out the dragon's true name and get control over it, it says, uh, um, you have two questions only, wizard. Isn't it normally three? Yes, but now it is two. Yeah. 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 And uh, by the way, apparently they are... Um, yeah, Legin had seen both of these. She died in 2018, so she... She, uh, but like the last uh, subject, uh, Harlan Ellison, she died in 2018. So uh, quite recently, um, as we, you probably remember a lot of uh, people quoting her a few years back. And um, uh, it should be noted, by the way, they are apparently in production on another version or they're beginning discussions on another version. Yeah, I think it's a TV, like they're going yeah. for a Game of Thrones sort of thing. And it's a A24, oddly enough, which is the people who did like oh, okay. The Witch and, and, and like they're known for their, the art film studio, which is maybe more yeah. interesting than uh, the normal. So we'll see. I the, think the, the Green the green the green Knight movie looks interesting. Yeah, exactly. Looking forward to that if they ever release it. Yeah. Um, so we'll see how that oh, comes uh, out. Oh, one more thing before we wrap up. Uh, Sparrowhawk is... Uh, uh, the what my usual username Sparrowhawk uh, uh, is oh. it's old English for sp uh, Sparrowhawk. Oh. That's just a coincidence. That's a historical figure uh, who I uh, decided to use the screen name of at random years ago, and it stuck. Uh, but I thought that was interesting. Okay, I did not know that. That's a crazy old English for you, or Middle English, or whatever it is. Yeah, I actually have no idea how to pronounce Sparavok, it or Spear Half I've Yeah, and it nobody knows how to spell it. Plus, it was already taken on Twitter, and I had to put an underscore after it. So, yep, uh, it's just a whole good, mess. Good enough. Anyway, yes. Well, we've uh, we've seen our shadow, and that means six weeks more winter, but uh, no more What Mad Universe. So it's time to say farewell to all. We are the Elder Dragons, Adam Prosser and Philip Rice. We want to say thanks once again to our producer and engineer and God King, Alex Ross, and the master patterner, Jack Furick, writer of theme songs, 
Just a reminder that capitalism is still, for the present, as inevitable as the divine right of kings. So, as a result, we both have Patreons to pay for our hosting costs and incidentals. Uh, if you subscribe to either of us, you can listen to this podcast early every time, as well as getting bonus material, cut footage, and illustrations and comics, among other things. Uh, just go to Patreon and search for Philip Rice, one L, or Adam Prosser, two S's, or NeverSleepsNetwork.com slash series slash what-mad-universe for the links. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at WMU Podcast or Prankster36 for me or SpearHalfOck underscore, as mentioned, for Philip. Also, if you've been enjoying the show, we'd really, really appreciate it if you could write us a review on Apple iTunes, which would really help boost our profile and reach more people with this show. So uh, until next time, let's all be the ones who walk away from What Mad Universe. <laughs>